All right, welcome. We want to welcome all of our audience to Minority Report with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in media and business. And today joining us is Anas Ghazi, who is the Chief Strategy Officer at the Stagwell Group. Let's jump in and get to know Anas. Anas, welcome. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. Thrilled to be on. So thank you both for the opportunity. Oh, fantastic. No, uh, we're, we're excited that you're here. And for our audience who may not know you, tell us a little bit about what you're doing for a living and your uh, areas of expertise. Perfect. So currently, I'm the Chief Strategy Officer over the, at the Stagwell Group. And the Stagwell Group is a digital-first advertising holding group uh, where we have a variety of different agencies within the portfolio across the areas of research and insights, content and media, digital transformation and communication strategy, where we collaborate internally and then also with our affiliate agencies over at MDC partners as well, where we are looking to bring the idea of simplicity and digital first to all of our clients. So my role specifically at the group is around driving business development, client engagement, and also go-to-market strategy. Excellent. Excellent. Tell our audience a little bit about where you're from, where you were born, and, and uh, how you grew up. Oh, gosh, that, that is a, that's a large question. So <laughs> I'm going to try to keep it really short because uh, I'm truly a global citizen in that I was born and raised in the UK, uh, in Wembley, actually, just outside of London. But my parents themselves are from my mother's of Indian descent, uh, Indian and uh, Burmese descent, and my father's of Turkish and Pakistani descent. And then we moved to the US when I was 12. And so then I went from the city of London to the suburbs of Chicago, which was a total <laughs> culture shock, really, really different. And then did all my schooling in the US, you know, from undergrad, both grad school, both times, and then North, at Northwestern. And during high school, I actually uh, dabbled in a little bit of acting and voiceover work and so forth. And for a bit, I actually thought I was going to be an actor. I was like, I'm going to be this on-screen dude. And yeah. then I sort of, uh, after grad school, I needed a job. And the closest job that I could find to the casting agency, which was David O'Connor in Chicago, was at TransUnion, which is a credit bureau. And I actually started off going from being an actor, super creative, to being a modeler and a coder over at TransUnion Coding. Oh. Uh, yeah, I know, right? Antithesis, very antithetical. <laughs> uh, coding uh, campaigns and models for uh, credit card companies such as Visa and MasterCard and American Express, ultimately identifying how would specific credit card por portfolios perform and started off as a modeler, like a data engineer, actually, and then moved into becoming more client services and then moved from Chicago to New York to do the same type of work with American Express. But within literally three weeks, because I had a Facebook account, ultimately, my VP at the time was like, well, you've got Facebook account, you understand digital. So can you help the risk information management group do lead digital transformation? So I was like, sure, I can. Right. So I was brave enough, foolish enough to take it on. And, you know, pretty much led up the, the risk information management group's entire digital strategy of how American Express could continue to connect with younger audiences through platforms such as Twitter and Facebook and so forth, while also expanding their footprint into a variety of different audiences. Ultimately, that had, like American Express is a affluent card. So how could they connect with the progeny of their existing card members? Mm -hmm. And so then from there, I moved into advertising over at WPP. And then lo and behold, today I'm at Stagwell. So awesome. very non-linear path. Very non-linear. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, Anas, I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago about sort of being a global citizen, right? And you just uh, sort of explained your your background and career path a little bit and, and different areas of the world you've lived in, right? How do you think sort of your background and your worldly, call it experience, has helped shape your understanding around sort of inclusivity for all and, you know, understanding different people with different backgrounds? So it's been huge, right? I believe right now we're very fortunate to be in the era of authenticity, mm. where you get to be yourself and bring yourself to work every single day. So, you know, myself being of Indian Pakistani origin, being Muslim, so I know a lot about like Arab culture just from where the religion stems, to watching a lot of Indian films, to having a like like loving to speak Spanish from what I've learned in high school. So all of that has been, and then understanding different religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, you know, Sikhism, whatever it might be, just being of Asian descent, it's been super helpful because I've seen it come to fruition, especially in the professional sense, multiple times. I remember there was a point in time when I was leading WPP's Data Alliance, I was the CEO of there, and there was a campaign for a hair brand out of Indonesia, but the creative was being done in New York. Mm. And the way the creative was being done, it was very, I would say, very Western-centric. But I was like, hold on yeah. a second. The folks, the women in Indonesia, they wear hijab. And the creative team who were working on it didn't even know what that was. Yeah. So to have to explain, be like, hey, and then, then there was this stereotypical view, oh, where women are forced to cover their hair. I was like, no, no, no. In Indonesia... It's like how Yuna wears her hijab. Like she's like this fashion icon and it's a sense of empowerment. So you've got to, you've got to bring that forward for this hair care brand. So to your point around inclusion and diversity, I think understanding the world is different and it's different for everyone down to the point that you would never give a Brahmin person wine, which did happen. And I was like, dude, <laughs> this, this dude, this super religious guy, they don't, they, yeah. they don't drink wine. He's very by the book, you know, practically vegan in some of his choices you've got to respect that. So it's mm -hmm. been understanding the world has been super helpful, especially in advertising, because consumers yeah. are not one way. If anything, we're seeing a pendulum where folks are going, but the trend is going from west to back east. So you're seeing a lot of like platforms and different folks like, like TikTok and so forth. They're making that move. You, you know, the East is coming quite strong. So you've got to understand all of that as you engage all the way to when you're in Japan. What does that all look like? So it's been a huge piece of understanding. Like when someone says a name, I could tell you if they're South Indian or North Indian, or mm -hmm. I could tell you what religion they are. So it's been great in just understanding people and ultimately understanding how to drive a business forward because I've had a variety of different cultural pods throughout my lifetime. Yeah, no, that's a uh, really good insights there. And, and, you know, I think from a business perspective, right, you mentioned sort of this idea of being able to bring your full self to work, right? What do you think companies can do today to, to make sure that their culture overall is, is more inclusive of everyone and it opens the door for people to sort of be their, their authentic self at work? It has to be in the fabric of the company because mm -hmm. I'll, I'll be really candid. I do see a lot of tokenism or now it's the buzzword, the same way big data was a buzzword right. at a point in time. Yep. Now it's, you know, DEI or IND, however you want to call it. It's the buzzword right. because folks think that just by saying it, it makes you that authentic source. You know, my thing is put your money where your mouth is, right? Have people go out there and represent, you know, have those folks at the decisioning table so that people you need to represent what you, your belief system 
So for me, I think companies need to bring people forward of different mindsets so that they ultimately are public facing as well, all the way from speaking at conferences to thought leaderships, all of that. You don't have to just be in the leadership suite. Bring forward all of your teams so that they represent the audience you're trying to engage with and give them a voice and a face, more importantly. Mm. What do you love about the media and advertising industry? What do I love? There's a lot of things that I love. I mean, <laughs> I, like from a kid from Wembley to, to, to be, go to Cannes and travel the world. I mean, like I said, I was in financial services for about eight years. The world of advertising has allowed me to live my best life. I've been able to travel the world, been to over 60 countries, meet mm. amazing people, you know, go to the top of Borbador in Indonesia to, you know, standing in front of the Eiffel Tower in Paris to being in South Africa, you know, at uh, Pillensburg. So, I've got to travel. I've got to work on cool concepts. But above all, I think the piece that I love the most is you get to bring your own piece of yourself and help shape someone else's thoughts. So it's your invisible thumbprint that you're putting on someone else's tapestry. And that's why I love that we are now in this era that through advertising, we're able to shape messages that help people see the world in a different way. And I think that's probably the most exciting thing to me about this industry. You know, uh, we're in a unique situation here where we're all sort of talking to each other from home. And sometimes we're in offices when we do this or or visit each other, you know, what's sort of the work life balance look like for you? We were were joking at the beginning before we we started rolling here and um, every day is a Tuesday or a Thursday. What's work life balance like for you? I will be honest throughout my career. I'm the worst example of work life balance. For me, I have always just been the job. And I think it is because culturally, culturally, education and work come before everything. Mm. Like you can be late to everything or whatever, as long as you're studying, you're good. You know, being an Asian dude, like, so before when it was education, that's what it is. And now for me, like I do work long hours and weekends could probably work. An easy weekend for me is when I work six to eight hours, let's just say. But it's because I enjoy it. I I enjoy what I do and my mind is always thinking. At the same token, I do have practices like in the beginning of the day, I'm a huge believer of gratitude. or So I do the five-minute journal. So I do that at the beginning of the day and I do it at the ending of the day as well because I think you have to be thankful for everything you have, but you also have to take stock of your day and you have to put intention out in the world of what you want your day and your life to look like. So there are practices that I do. I, I read a lot as well whenever I get a chance to do so. So for me, it's work is a big proponent of it now, or it's always been. But there are pieces that I do throughout the day, or I pray throughout the day. So as Muslims, we pray five times a day. So I get these little meditation breaks throughout the day as well. But a lot of it is I, I do what needs to get done because I really enjoy it. If I don't enjoy it, I can't really do it. When you enjoy it, you tend to do a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. You know, it's interesting, you know, you have a strong work ethic, obviously, and, and sometimes it comes either from family or from mentors or from people in the space that you sometimes realize you don't realize you're modeling. Right. Like, did you have mentors both personally or, or even professionally? Like, tell us a little bit about that. So it's interesting in terms of like the work ethic and mentors, a lot of it has been modeled, right? So I think from a very young age, so I'm an immigrant myself, immigrated from the UK to the US. My parents are double immigrants. My mom's lived in like four countries in her lifetime. Mm -hmm. So for me, I I think it's always been about realizing the immigrant struggle. So seeing like my mother was widowed when I was really young and she raised five kids on her own. So always knowing that my crown has been paid for and that 
anything that I had, it was actually on the shoulders of other people. So any success or any any amount of climbing I've been able to up the, uh, up the corporate ladder, it didn't begin with me. It be, actually began 60 years ago when my parents left their native countries. Yeah. So for me, that's been the modeling of it, knowing that none of this is given and none of it has come easy. And mm-hmm. it's been life and death decisions that people have had to make for my siblings and I and all, all of my peers in this generational group, like that you, you, ha- you have to do well because it's on the backs of other people. So I think yeah. that's been the first piece of it. But I've also had role models while I've been in corporate. There are, there, there's been folks who I've looked at and be like, that's not who I want to be. There have been folks such as, you know, when I was at TransUnion, my, my colleague Tanisha Hogan or Michelle Sims, they were always people who were stewards of, you should never ask someone to do something that you wouldn't do yourself. Or at WPP in particular, a gentleman by the name of Nick Nyhan, who is probably the most selfless person I've ever come across. He literally blocked and tackled so that I could always make the play. Mm-hmm. He taught me that kindness comes first, and it's not how many followers you have, but it's how many leaders you create. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other person who inspired me uh, several, like almost two decades back, I met a gentleman by the name of Farah Katwari, who is the CEO of Ethan Allen. And he's a, he's, he's a Kashmiri gentleman. But to see someone of, who looked like me, who had my resonance, who had my sensibilities, and feel like this dude's leading an American firm. And if he can do it, I can do it. So that really? representation was inspiring as well. So it's been a multitude of role models and inspiration and behaviors that have helped coach me along the way. You know, one thing you said there that kind of stuck out to me, and I want to make sure I got this right, it's, it's not only looking at people to model yourself after, but looking at people to, that you don't want to model yourself after as well, too. And I think that's just as important. It, it is. And I would use the, so it's, I think it was Michelangelo who said when he would see a piece of concrete or a slab of clay, he always believed the sculpture was within it. So you have to chisel away who you want to be. So those negative people, I feel like that's the chiseling or shaping you of who you want to be and who you don't want to be. Mm. That's mm. very important because I think those have been some super interesting lessons I've learned along the way. And a lot of it was around, like I think as I was coming up through the ranks, I was very type A, especially during reviews. I'd go in with my binders and I was like, these were my KPIs <laughs> and this is what I've done. And what I've always found shocking was when some of my managers, but well, we don't know what you did. You have to tell us. But dude, you're my manager. You should mm. always know what I'm doing. So even now, as I've led firms and I've coached and managed people, because I've been through that, I make it my business to know what everyone's doing. Because if I don't, how am I going to advocate for them when they're not in the room? Because a lot of those decisions do happen when people aren't in the room. So it is incumbent on leaders to be leaders and to represent. You're, you're an agent for your people. You're a talent agent. You got to push them for every opportunity. So that's been a big thing for me. Is you know you've got to know what your teams are doing so you can advocate. You know, and us with such great experience and all the things you just you just shared. Have you personally ever experienced like discrimination? And if so, like how how did you deal with it? You know, it's it's interesting you would ask me that, and uh, I've got a very unique answer. I think for me, I mean, weirdly, having an English accent has been it's been great. Because folks are like, oh, you're English and you sound sophisticated. So what, what I've experienced in some aspects of my life is I am seen as Western because of my outlook. Or a lot of people think I'm Brazilian or Latino or whatever. But in those I thought you were Brazilian. Yeah. yeah. 
you know, so it's, yes, yeah, so, so I get a lot of that. But what's been interesting is that what I've seen is that there are times when it's convenient for me to be white, and so therefore people put me in that column. But then mm. it's convenient for, for for other people to see me as Asian, then they put me in that column. So there's, there's been some of that. But what has been interesting for me is, and there are a lot of my peers in this immigrant group who were born and raised in out here in the West, but we have been raised with the values of the East. So when I was in India setting up an office over there, I was the recipient of reverse discrimination. So I went to India and I was setting up an office and I remember being in a board meeting where there were folks who came in and they were speaking in Hindi, thinking that I wouldn't understand Hindi and mm. saying really disparaging things about me. Thinking, oh, wow. And and it was interesting because I did my level best to not make eye contact because I did I just don't want to deal with it and I didn't want them to know that I knew what they were saying. Of course, at that point in time, my mom was blowing up my phone, so I had to pick up my phone and speak back in Urdu or Hindi to my mom. And then all of a sudden, they're like, "Wait, you, you could speak? Uh, I'm, of course, I could speak uh, Hindi or Urdu." Yeah. I was just like, "Why would you think I can't?" Amazing. So I've, I've experienced that because I think I saw it in the movie Selena. But immigrants, you've got to be more American than the Americans, and then you've got to be more Indian or Pakistani than the Indian and Pakistanis. You've mm. got to fit in both. But I've also experienced it on, in some occasion, like indirectly, where folks feel like you don't understand certain things because you're not of the region. But with that being said, I think the piece that I've learned, and I think the truth has also been, I've had a lot of people, a lot of Caucasian folks advocate for me as well. And I think the lesson that I've learned is earlier in my career, I was completely blind to it. It may have happened, but I was just so focused on the prize that I was like, I'm going to run through concrete walls, even if it kills me. It's like working out, right? If, if, if it happens, you do have to address it, but you strengthen a muscle and it makes you, it makes you better, right. right? Not to say that it's deserved because it's never deserved because I was literally in a situation where I was asked to join this group that was around inclusion, diversity, and so forth. And then I was asked not to join it. And I'm like, hold on a second. I'm this Muslim dude who are, you know, a variety of backgrounds who probably is living this crux of what's happening now. And yet you're saying, I, I don't fit the bill here. Mm. You know, and it was interesting because it was a Caucasian woman who made that comment to me. And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. So even though those things happen, I've realized when you are discriminated against, a lot of times hurt people hurt people. If this isn't a fit for me, the higher power is saying that there's something better for me. So, like, I'm a huge fan of immigrant leaders by uh, Ilham Ferdad in the UK, where they're literally putting, they're, they're teaching folks like me when I was younger around how to develop their careers and give them the skill sets to become executive leaders. So, it's finding other organizations and places where you do fit and really bring out your full self. So, very long way to answer your question. So, I have, no, I have received that. it. But I think yeah. it's overcoming it and just being your best self and not letting anyone stop that. Like Boza St. John, I'm a huge fan of hers. She does it the best. She's all about being your best self. And I think that's what you have to do. And don't let anyone throw shade at you no matter what. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you on that one. Yeah. Where do you draw inspiration from? What keeps you going day to day? Uh, I hate to lose. I know that sounds terrible, but <laughs> right. you know, I, 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 I might be in that category. You're very competitive. I am, su <laughs> I am super competitive. I do believe, like, and I've often said there is no winning and losing. There's winning and learning. And I do take lessons all the time. But in terms of where I get my drive from, I think it's having the gratitude that whatever I have, it's been built on the backs of my parents who have sacrificed a lot to be here. 
And it's also realizing that like I became CEO before I was 40. And at that point in time, I, I, I was in New York. I was like, everyone's a CEO. It's not a big deal. But when I stepped out of that and realized that it is to some degree that it is an accomplishment and there are other people, the same way I looked up to Farah Kathwari, there are other people who look up to me. So I think it's taking inspiration that maybe I can help folks. And when I see people like Anjali Su there, Vimeo, who are so young and slaying it, it's being able to be part of a fraternity where you can at least inspire hope and just tell people that it's all right to be yourself because that's the only person you are and no one can be that, be you better. So I think that's the inspiration that I continually have of listen to your inner voice because there's a reason you're on this planet and you, yep. you should contribute. Yep. Very much so. Very much so. So now uh, a fun question. I love asking every guest on the podcast and you've listened to episodes, so you know what's coming. <laughs> Give us three apps on your phone that you regularly use that you cannot name email or the calendar app. Okay. Uh, LinkedIn for sure. Love LinkedIn just for the content bio. Right now I'm going through this initiative of trying to help people get placement with all these 35 million people unemployed. Yeah. Uh, so LinkedIn is number one. I have become recently become a huge fan of Quibi. I love Quibi. Their programming is brilliant. I just love the way the stories are put together. And I would have to say, I'm going to sound so financial service right now, E-Trade. <laughs> all right, that's okay. <laughs> so th 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 those would be the three. Those would be the three. Nas, thanks for hanging with us. And often our audience likes to connect and stay in touch. Where can they find you? How can they follow you? So they can follow me at, on Twitter at, at AnasGhazi, A-N-A-S-G-H-A-Z-I-7. Or they could uh, shoot me a note on LinkedIn and happy to connect there as well. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. Also, you know, thanks for always listening and spending time with us as an audience. You can just search Minority Report Podcast and look for the logo wherever you find all of your audio and visual content. Thanks. <laughs>